A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome back to The Prospect Interview, the podcast where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. My name is Samir Rahim and today I'm joined by the award-winning war correspondent and author Janine Di Giovanni to discuss the plight of Christians in the Middle East. An Amnesty International Award winner, Di Giovanni has reported from conflicts across the globe, including Chechnya, Bosnia and Rwanda. Christians have been living in the Middle East for 2,000 years, but now, says Giovanni, they are severely under threat and they may even disappear altogether as they face war, religious persecution and economic uncertainty. Janine, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. No problem. Good to be here. Um, Many people will know, I'm sure, that Arab countries have historically had Christian populations. Maybe they'll know about Lebanon, but... I'm not sure whether everyone really knows quite how long-lasting, how ancient these communities are um, and how under threat they are. Can you tell us a little bit, just to set everything up, about about the history of Christians in the Middle East? Absolutely. Um, Well, Samir, it's really interesting because I've worked in the Middle East for, for many, many years, for three decades. And even I, and I'm a Catholic, I was brought up as a Catholic, had no idea uh, the roots that these very ancient people have in their ancestral lands. And basically, I focused on four communities. Um, the Copts of Egypt, um, the the Christians in the Gaza Strip, uh, the Christians in Iraq and in Syria. Each one of them is very different. They have different challenges that face them. They have different um, histories, different commitments to their to their communities. But all of them have the general kind of theme, which is they are in the process of being eradicated. Um, some social scientists believe that in a hundred years' time they won't be in in this part of the world anymore, and their roots stretch back. 2000 years. Um, the Christians in Iraq, of course, were the, basically, um, the subtitle of my book is faith loss in the, and the, the twilight of Christianity in the land of the prophets. And I think the title says a lot because, for instance, in Iraq, in the Nineveh plain, these people are direct descendants of St. Thomas and of the apostles who went there to, to preach, to bear witness, and of course, to get more people to join their, their flock. Um, but you really, when you're there and you're standing on the land or you're standing in their churches, you're then really confronted with the absolute weight of history, which is, which is, you know, just tremendous. 
as you say, these these communities have been around for a very long time. And um, with the rise of Islam in the seventh century and the Arab takeover of uh, lots of countries, um, there were they suddenly became had different status. They suddenly really became second class citizens, didn't they? I think it was gradual. Um, I mean, for instance, Gaza, again, a place I've worked since 1990, I had no idea that there was this Christian community who were, you know, descendants from the time when Gaza was completely Christian um, until the fourth century. And, and then how these people have clung on to their, not just to their faith, but it's also very much their identities and, and who they are. Um, and I think it, it's almost very much a cultural thing as well as, as a religious thing, because they are deeply, they are people who I found profoundly spiritual, but it's less say that you would find in an evangelical church in Georgia or somewhere in the deep South. It's much more about a deep connection to the land. Um, you know, this is the land of, of Jesus Christ and the land of his apostles and the land of, of people that held on to it despite armies and plagues and subjugation and most recently the Islamic State, of course, in, in Iraq and Syria, who have tried to destroy them. And there's other factors too right now. And since, you know, COP21 is going on in, you know, very close to you, um, climate change, climate change in the Middle East is is an absolute priority. Um, Iraq, for instance, is fifth on the list of the United Nations most vulnerable countries. Um, there's a combination of drought. There's a combination of rising temperatures and also livelihood. When ISIS rolled through the Nineveh plain in 2014, they destroyed a lot of the irrigation facilities. And many of the Christians were farmers. They had been farmers for, for, you know, thousands of years. And the Nineveh plain is one of the breadbaskets of Iraq. Um, now those farms have been destroyed. They need to be rehabilitated. Um, new ways of irrigation have to be developed. And the same goes for the fishing communities along the great rivers like the Tigris and the Euphrates. Um, Egypt also is suffering from climate change, as is Gaza. And Gaza has an additional challenge, which is the desperate, desperate humanitarian situation there. Um, I, I got back, I was there over the summer, and, you know, it was great to travel again post-COVID or, you know, it's still, there were intense restrictions getting in um, because of COVID. But I wanted to witness what had happened in the wake of the horrific 11-day bombing um, by Israeli Israeli forces in May. And, you know, the situation in Gaza is worse than I have ever seen it. So all of the 2 million people living there suffer. But within those 2 million people are a tiny community, 800 people of Christians. So um, all of these things are, are, you know, adding up to make life unlivable for, for all these people. Um, the UN estimated that by 2020, Gaza would be entirely unlivable. And, you know, we're already in 2021, about to roll into 2022. So that's, that's quite a scary and sobering thought. Yes, the Gaza community, you looked, I knew nothing about them. And that was the really fascinating part of the, the book, because in a way they're dealing with um, 
two situations layered on top of each other. One, the uh, um, uh, uh, the Israeli blockade and the, the Israeli-Palestinian um, conflict, but then within their own communities, there are minorities. So, and they're having to deal with Hamas, which is not easy for them either. Right. Exactly. They're, you know, absolutely. They're sandwiched between Hamas, who many of them say to me, you know, they leave us alone. They don't bother us. But there are extreme groups and. You know, in recent years, the only Baptist bookshop, the only Christian bookshop was burnt down, um, you know, when Hamas came to power in 2007, 2006, 2007. They basically changed a way of life in Gaza. Um, I remember a cinema had opened, it closed down, um, alcohol, you know, there had been restaurants and things on, There's, you know, remember that there's an incredibly beautiful stretch of a beach in Gaza, which if it was not subjugated by Israeli restrictions and the closures and the the siege could be something that could be developed into an absolute extraordinary um, piece of land. Um, but all that went, you know, with, with Hamas, basically. And while they have, they've loosened their fierceness, and I would say, I think they're they're very much trying to, to brand themselves as a different kind of Hamas. Um, they still, they still, you know, are guided by certain principles. But frankly, more worrying and more of a problem for the Christians is the Israeli closures. Now, these closures mean that, and not just the Christians, by the way, um, people can't get out of Gaza for medical treatment. I know many families that have had members who have died because they couldn't go for you know, even minor surgeries like gallbladder surgeries or where they had appointments in hospitals and they could not get out to go. They couldn't get the permits. For the Christians, it means that they can't go to Bethlehem, which, of course, is a spiritual home for, for many Christians, um, for Christmas or Easter to join family. Or the Israelis might give them a permit for one member of their family, um, which, you know, is kind of useless because they don't want to go and spend Christmas alone or separate their family. Um, so these restrictions, and it also means um, training, job training. Gaza has one of the best educated, um, most highly educated intellectual group of people in the Middle East. Um, education is a priority for everyone, even people in the most desperate situations in refugee camps. Um, from the time children are very small, they make sure they're in school. Most Gazans I know speak perfect English, as well as another European language, which they've learned on YouTube, because of course they can never leave to learn it. Um, they're entrepreneurs. They have the most tremendous spirit, which, you know, comes down to resilience, but also their sort of defiance in getting educated, as if to say the Israelis have taken everything from them, but they cannot take their minds. Um, so the closure in many ways, the, the siege, um, it's it's an attempt to squeeze them to death, and yet their 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 response is well, we are going to educate ourselves. We're just going to get better and smarter, and you know, hopefully, um, there will be a recognition, especially of the young people under thirty who really deserve a chance. Um, I always say that Gaza, if it was given the chance, could be a, a Chennai in terms of outsourcing or using young people there, um, using their, their minds, their skills, their resources. Um, 
But going back to the book, this is this is a whole question for the entire, all of the young Christians throughout the region, because they get educated and there's no work. So in Iraq, again, or Syria, um, what really needs to happen is a kind of a way of, of preventing the mass migration, which has been taking place. And that's what's really dwindling the population. So to, um, you know, to, to, to make an incentive for these people to stay in their ancestral lands, to protect them. Um, and again, each, each country has different challenges. For instance, in Iraq, the danger of the Iranian-backed um, popular mobilization militias, but also Turkish airstrikes. Um, in Syria, of course, there's the geopolitics of the terrible war, which is grinding into an 11th year. Um, Gaza, there's Hamas and Israel. And Egypt, there are laws enshrined within the Egyptian constitution, which um, which discriminate against the Christian cops from holding high positions in the army, in government, even in marriage and inheritance laws. So all these things come together to make life incredibly difficult for these people. And yet we have to keep them there. So how do we do this? This is really what I'm digging into in, in my book, The Vanishing. Yes, and as you say that, in particularly in Iraq and, and in Syria, it hasn't always been this way. Um, so in the recently, of course, we had the rise of jihadism and, and, and ISIS. But in the post-war period, there was a sort of secular Arab nationalism, um, which, you know, Christian thinkers like Michel Aflaq were involved in and, uh, and, other, and, other, and others as well. Um, and so there did seem to be a moment where there was a sort of supranational, um, super-religious, as it were, um, uh, identity and a way of sort of forming society that wasn't on these deep religious lines. Absolutely. And Samir, there was one thing while I was writing this that I kept in my mind at all times. And that was that I didn't want this book to be a Muslim bashing book. I didn't want it to turn into a vehicle to be used by, you know, I'm living in America right now. So I was writing it during the Trump years and I just did not want it to be a vehicle that the Trumpists and the Christian evangelicals who were aligned with him and also thus aligned with the Zionists in Israel, the extreme right, the settler movement, to use this as a way of saying, you know, Christians are good, Muslims are bad. And they, you know, the Muslims are trying to eradicate them. That's just a uh, reductive view of it. And it's very, very simplified. Muslims and Christians have lived together for thousands of years. Um, in, in many ways, the same way that, say, the Jewish community in Baghdad um, was such an important part of Iraqi society until the 50s and then again in the 70s when they were purged. And the loss of that community has been profound. So the Christians, and, and indeed all of the minorities of Iraq, the Yazidis, the Turkmen, are such a vital part of the mix that makes up Iraq. And I think that um, without them, I mean, as one very senior government official told me, you know, without the Christians of Iraq, there is no Iraq. They are, you know, a vital part of the community. So there is this kind of dilemma. Um, and especially I remember in 2014, literally when ISIS were rolling through uh, Mosul, I went to see one of the Chaldean bishops in uh, Baghdad 
who was very influential. And he was in tears because he said to me, they're, you know, people are calling me, they're desperate. They're asking me what they should do. Should, you know, they have relatives in Canada. They can go, they can go to America. Um, but if they leave, I mean, what do I tell them? Do I tell them to go be safe or do I tell them, no, no, stay on your land because if they leave their lands, that's it. So, I mean, the numbers are very difficult. You know, people always say to me, well, how many Christians are in Iraq now? I, and I don't like numbers. You know, when I work for the UN Refugee Agency, even with figures of, um, of refugees, I'm always very wary because very difficult to calculate and numbers can be exploited. But if we look at like Saddam era census, there were, 1.5 million Christians in Iraq. And that's a very old census, like let's say more than 40 years old. Um, now it's estimated there's between 150,000 and some say as high as 500,000. I sincerely doubt that. I think it's closer to 150,000 Christians um, with, with you know, many still trying to leave. So, you know, it, that gives you an idea about the really dwindling populations. In, in Iraq, same in Syria, and um, certainly Gaza, you know, I mean, the Christians I spoke to, the families, were really, yeah, Gaza's their home. Their, their roots have been there for generations and generations and generations. But the desperation they feel is, is very valid, and the fear. Um, the cops of Egypt are a very different situation because they are, um, well, I would say they are more discriminated rather than persecuted, although there have been many incidents of churches being burned, of um, pilgrim buses on their way to monasteries in the Sinai being attacked by um, radical groups, Al-Qaeda in the Sinai, ISIS in the Sinai. Um, and they are equally, um, depending on their social class, because, you know, I've met people from Christian cops from all walks of life, very, very, very wealthy, old families, and then extremely poor in the Minya province or in Cairo suburbs where the Christians are the garbage collectors, basically. So I think, Samir, the important thing is to look at every one of these communities within their own right and what are their challenges, what do they need, you know, what are policy recommendations we can put in place to protect them. Um, and that's really what I tried to do in this book. No, absolutely. You had a, to talk about Syria, which is, I mean, as you say, still an ongoing um, tragedy. You, you know, you, you talk to people in, in Malula, which is a, a well-known yeah. uh, place for people who know Syria uh, or, or visited there. Tell us a little bit about that place and, and, and its fate. Malula is or was an incredible place. Um, so... You know, and you, and you know this, like in the beginning of the Syrian war, it was possible for people like me to get visas and go to the regime side. And for those who don't know, I'll just briefly lay it out. In order to report in Syria during the war, and now there were two ways. One was you could get um, accredited by the government, the regime of Bashar al-Assad. And generally, he didn't give visas to people like me who were, you know, human rights investigators. It was more for uh, people who journalists who came from countries that were friendly to them. So the Chinese, the Russians, Polish occasionally, um, or journalists who were known to be, uh, well, I don't want to say Assad supporters, um, those who were going to be more friendly to, um, to Assad. 
If you couldn't get a visa, the only option open to you then was to cross illegally through Turkey um, to get to places like Aleppo and Idlib. Um, but that got increasingly dangerous after 2014 when ISIS took control of many of the checkpoints and, and made Raqqa their capital. So that was when many of my colleagues, including Jim Foley and Steve Sutloff, were kidnapped and those two were very sadly executed by ISIS. Um, so reporting was very difficult. But in the beginning, for reasons unknown to me, I was given several visas to go to Iraq and uh, sorry, to Syria via um, Lebanon. So literally, I could drive from Beirut to Damascus, the same road that St. Paul, who had been Saul, um, had his great vision where he converted to, to Christianity. So I got to Malula um, in 2011-2012, pretty early on, and it was to me just a remarkable place because the war was starting, the war was all around it, and yet it was this peaceful oasis of, of faith. And there were these nuns there running this very beautiful monastery, very idyllic, making jam and, and praying and having even song. And there were um, shrines in, in days past before the war. Uh, Malula had been a place where women who had fertility problems would go and um, get blessings. But basically, what happened, these nuns were very pro-Assad, by the way, or at least that's what they told me. They might, I mean, I genuinely, I believe them. It wasn't a matter of them being afraid. I think they genuinely supported Assad because Assad, like many dictators, protected Christians. Saddam Hussein protected Christians. Mubarak protected the Christians. Um, so there's been this kind of tradition of Christians hovering under the, the, the arm of these, of these dictators that kind of held these countries together under republics of fear. Um, Malula then, during the span of the war, underwent a change of hands many times. It was overrun by first the Free Syrian Army, then by ISIS, then by another Islamic group, then back in government hands, uh, then it fell again. Um, it literally went through like many transformations. So many of the people that I interviewed very early on, and then when I went back again a second time um, before I was thrown out of, of uh, regime held Syria for good in, I think, 2014, um, were gone. So Malula, the fate of Malula um, changed over many, many times. And it was just for me a symbol of a kind of oasis in the middle of a war that was spinning wildly out of control and became increasingly brutal and bloody. Yes, and when, when I was living in Syria about 15 years ago, Malula was a place where Muslim women would also go, as well as Christian, to get fertility help. It was known as a sacred place to, um, to more than one community. Yes, it was that, that wonderful kind of interfaith. And... The same with shrines in Mosul. I mean, there were, there were, there were shrines where Muslims, Christians, and even, I think, um, Jews, there was one which had been destroyed by ISIS, of course. So, I mean, there were these kind of important places throughout the Middle East that proved that there was this multicultural, multi-faith dynamic. It reminded me very much of Sarajevo before the war. Um, 
Sarajevo, you know, one of the reasons the Bosnian Serbs wanted to destroy it. And by the way, there is an on, you know, brewing tensions again in Bosnia, which scare the hell out of me, having lived through that war. Um, but not to get off track, um, it was very similar. Sarajevo was a multicultural place where Muslims, Christians, Jews, um, Orthodox prayed, lived, worked, intermarried. Um, and the war destroyed all that, you know, and, and in many ways, um, this is what we really want to avoid throughout the Middle East is a homogenized region. And that's why it's so imperative to keep the Christians there, to support them, not just for them, but for, for regional implications of having, you know, wider repercussions of having, you know, of having these minorities, these diverse communities driven out. As you alluded to just now with your uh, discussion of Bosnia, you know, you've brought it from many war zones over the years. You've seen and um, witnessed appalling um, things. As an observer, as a journalist, what, why do you take those risks? Why is it so important to you to, um, to go there? Is it about bearing witness or accumulating evidence? It's both. Um, very, very early on in my life, and it's really interesting, I was this morning I was thinking, you know, I wonder what my life would have been like if I had never gone to Bosnia. But actually it was before that. I mean, it was, it was really in 1990, the first intifada in Palestine. And I, I, you know, I never wanted to be a journalist. I was on track to become an academic. And I went to Israel to meet an extraordinary woman who really influenced my life. She was a humanitarian um, a Jewish lawyer who defended Palestinians in military court called Felicia Langer. And I basically, I saw her work, which was tireless effort to bring justice to people who had been wronged. And I just felt like I couldn't, there was nothing else I could do with my life but that. And um, I was very, very young and that just stuck with me. So when I went to Bosnia, it increased because um you know, Bosnia really was a war where it was a war of aggression. You know, anyone who says it was a war of religion, it was a war of ethnic tribes who couldn't live together um, is wrong. It was very clearly a war of perpetrators and victims. Um, and, and I know because I was living in Sarajevo, so I was getting shelled and sniped and um, along with my Bosnian friends and colleagues. So I, I truly believe that... Um, for me, it was a calling. It wasn't really um, anything I had a choice about. Someone once said to me, you didn't choose it, it chose you. And and I very much believe that. And I, you know, at, without sounding whiny, it, it, it's been a great sacrifice in my life because I think I would have had a much quieter, um, more, um, more settled life. You know, I'd be living in Brooklyn with a husband and two kids and a dog and a cat, and I wouldn't be driven by, um, you know, <laughs> injustices around the world that keep me up at night um, or, or fear of like an oncoming war in Bosnia or, um, you know, a desire to, to, you know, gain oral histories of people so that they'll be preserved so they'll never be forgotten. I mean, my my wish is that, yes, to gather evidence, absolutely, and my work has been used in several war crime tribunals, but um, 
that the voices of these people in a hundred years time will never be forgotten. That, you know, people cannot say this didn't happen. Well, it did because I was there and other people were there. So it's more about building an archive um, so that people that suffer so terribly, and I don't mean that in a, in a trite way because, you know, people always talk about the suffering, the suffering, but genuinely things that people endure, um, I don't want it to be in vain. You know, I want their voices to be heard. I want their stories to be recorded. I want it to be in black and white um, so that someday someone's going to listen to this or someone is going to read my book and they're going to say, I didn't know about that. And now I do. So I guess that's my kind of very lonely mission. Janita Giovanni, thank you so much. And that's all from us. Thank you very much for joining us this week. Janine DiGiovanni's book, The Vanishing, is out with Bloomsbury at the beginning of December. Our producer is Sarah Collins. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do leave us a rating and a review. Goodbye, stay safe and see you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.